Good morning, good morning. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I'm uh, one of the pastors and one of the elders here. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. Whether you are here in the building or whether you're worshiping online, we are glad that you chose to worship with us. Um, we are in the middle of a year-long series where we're walking through the New Testament together as a church family. Uh, we're reading five chapters a week, a chapter a day. And you can find out where we're at in our reading pr uh, plan by looking at the bottom of your worship guide. It says this week we'll be reading John chapters 5 through 9. We also have worship, uh, sorry, reading guides available outside on a rack in the hallway as well as online. And today we are starting a new series uh, on the Gospel of John. It's called Signs and Statements. Signs and Statements. And so um, we are, um, like I said, starting in the book of John today. If you've got a Bible with you, and I encourage you to to grab your Bible, turn to John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible near you under a chair around you. If you don't own a Bible and you need a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home as a gift from us. To kind of get started this morning, I wanted to share with you a story uh, that you may or may not have heard before. It, it happened back in March of 2004. It happened in the state of Utah. And what transpired that evening was there were 39 Boy Scouts and their leaders that were trapped under tons, literal tons of snow in an avalanche. And here's the interesting thing. After they were rescued, three short hours later, it was discovered that during the whole ordeal, those 39 Scouts and their leaders were sleeping comfortably through the whole thing, unaware oblivious to the disaster that was around them. You may be wondering, how in the world do you sleep through an avalanche? Well, the answer is this. They had intentionally gone to this part uh, of Utah, and they had intentionally dug into a cave, and they had intentionally kind of camped out in these caves. But the good news was they weren't all inside the caves. There were a couple of the scout leaders that were staying in a trailer nearby. And so when the storm came, they heard it. Uh, when the avalanche hit, they heard it, and they immediately called for emergency help. Because the scouts and the leaders that were inside, deep inside these caves, their whole world was kind of insulated, literally and figuratively. They could not hear a thing. They didn't know that the storm had come, and they slept through the whole ordeal. And the interesting thing is this. They were in need of rescue about from a danger that they knew absolutely nothing about. The text we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 2, we see that there is a young couple that is getting married, and they are being rescued from something, albeit not a avalanche, an avalanche, but they are being rescued from something unaware that they even needed a rescue party formed. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Jesus has just started his public ministry. You can read about it in, in chapter 1 where he calls a couple of disciples to begin to follow him, where he's with, the, with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is saying, hey, this is the Lamb of God. And then kind of the first thing out of the chute, if you will, that Jesus does is found in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is an account, a true account of what took place. It says, on the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's just a, a little village not far from Nazareth. It says the mother of Jesus was there. And then in verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
At this point, there were only about four or five of the disciples, not all 12 of them, but he and his disciples were there as well. And then in verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Then look at verse 4, very interesting verse that we're going to come back to in a moment. It says this, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants knew, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Sometimes when you read a passage of scripture, you kind of have to wrestle with like, what is this even saying? What's the story saying here? Trying to make sense of it. But the good news is oftentimes when you have a narrative which tells an account of something that took place, it can be, at least on the surface, fairly easy to follow. And of all the narratives in scripture, this is a very simple narrative to follow. The, the plot is just right there in front of you. The, the plot goes like this. Jesus, his disciples, and his mom are all at a wedding. When they're at the wedding, all of a sudden, the wine runs out. And the response is that Jesus takes water, turns water into wine, and everyone is happy again. That's kind of the story. It's easy, kind of straightforward to follow the plot, but if we're not careful, we're going to miss some details along the way. For instance, I mentioned a moment ago about the rescue of the scouts and the leaders and how no one knew they even needed to be rescued and they were rescued and then they're found finding out after the fact. There's something similar to this taking place here. If you go back and read verses 1 through 11, especially based on the fact that whenever the water, which is turned into wine, comes to the master of the ceremony, we find this. It says, um, it says in verse 9, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The, the image that I get, that I believe what took place is this. Only Jesus, his disciples, his mom, and those servants knew what took place. I don't even think anybody else was really fully aware of the fact that they'd run out of wine, much less that a miracle had taken place. And I, I think that's important for us to pick up, that, that unbeknownst to the wedding party, who is oblivious to their need in this moment, their need is still met. But I'll be honest with you, when I read verses 1 through 11, I struggled on verse 4. Like, verse 4 does not make sense to me. Like, what is Jesus saying? There are three different things in verse 4 that I'll be honest with you that kind of bugged me the first time I read it because, look at it with me, in, in verse 4 he starts by calling his mom woman. That doesn't seem very nice. It doesn't seem very polite. He looks at his mom and says, woman, when is the last time any of you turned to your mama and said, woman? That was probably the last time he said that. 
Husbands, don't try that either. Don't turn to your wife and say, woman, that's not a good statement to make. So that was a little troublesome when I read it at first. But then I had to remember a couple of details. If you're familiar with the end of John when Jesus is crucified, do you remember him being on the cross and the seven words that Jesus said, seven phrases Jesus said? At one point he looks down at John, his disciple whom he loves, and he says to him, uh, he says to, to his mom, woman, behold your son. And what he did was left his mother into the care of his disciple John whom he loved. And yet in that one he also says woman as well when he was being very tender with her. Truth of the matter is that culturally speaking, the word woman here is not offensive. The word woman here is not being a derogatory term. Rather, it is a term of endearment. It's culturally strange to me, but it's not culturally strange to them. It just was what was natural. To refer to her as woman was actually a polite term, a term of endearment, and something similar to the word ma'am. So that kind of helps me process verse 4 a little bit better. But there are two other statements in verse 4 that I'm going to draw to your attention and we're not quite going to answer what might be going on. Rather, I'm just going to highlight the things that kind of bugged me at first. Here's what it says. What does this have to do with me? His mom says, they're out of wine. The insinuation was, Jesus, do something about it. He looks at her and says, woman, we just explained that one. And then he says, what do you want me to do about it? It's as if he doesn't want to be involved in what takes place next. And then he says, my hour has not yet come, which leaves you with the impression that he's not going to do the miracle, and yet he turns around and he does the very thing when he says, it's not my hour yet. So it's a bit baffling. What is going on with verse 4? We're going to kind of come back to that in just a moment, but I wanted to set it out there in front of you in case you were kind of like me and wondering what's going on. But the key to it all, I think, is found in verse 11. Verse 11 is the summary of what took place. And verse 11 says, This, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We see here that John labels what takes place at the wedding in Cana as a sign. And the word sign is going to show up. This says this is the first one he did. Then you go to chapter 4, and it's going to be the second one he does. And then as you go on through, you're going to find throughout the Gospel of John, there are seven different times that something happens, and it's called a sign. So whenever we labeled this or titled this series, Signs and Statements, the reason we did it is because in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that we run across, and there are seven I am statements where Jesus makes a statement about who he is and as we look at those signs and as we look at those statements we understand who Jesus is and when we understand who Jesus is we understand better who we are and how we are to respond to him and so here in this account we find out this is the first sign let me explain what a sign is and what a sign is not a sign is not just a magic trick like we saw in the video a sign is not just some miracle even rather a sign is a miracle that points to something deeper than what is before your very eyes in a way it's similar to a parable when jesus told a story it was not just a story that's kind of a neat preaching illustration rather it's a story that has a deeper meaning a sign is a sign is a miraculous thing that takes place to draw attention to something that's deeper than what meets the eye and usually at least in the gospel of john always rather points to the messiah 
So this sign is a big deal, not just to kind of do a, a miracle or do a show, but rather to point to who Jesus is. And so look at the end of verse 11. What is the result of this sign? The result of the sign, the significance of the sign is it manifested Jesus' glory, and it also says that his disciples believed in him. His disciples had already believed in him, started the process of understanding him, but this is the beginning of his ministry, and they're beginning to understand more and more through this particular sign who he is. So to say that Jesus' glory was manifested and the disciples believed in him are, are two different things, yet they end up with the same result. You see, whenever Jesus' glory is manifested, it means that he reveals to us who God is. What's the purpose of the sign? For us to see who Jesus is. And to see who he is is going to impact our lives, and therefore we've got to make the choice based on who Jesus says he is, are we going to believe in him or not? And so the purpose of these signs is that not only his disciples that were with him that day would believe in him, but that you and I would believe in him as well. Now, briefly, you can keep your place in chapter 2, but briefly look at the end of John. John tells us the significance of signs and why he's written them down. Look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is the next to last chapter in the book of John. It's after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he says this. Now Jesus, this is John 20, sorry, yeah, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. John recorded seven of them. But he says he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Essentially the same sort of thing that we find in John chapter 2 verse 11 where it says that we are seeing this sign in order that we might believe in Jesus. And yes, also through believing in Jesus, John says in verse 31, that we would have life in him. I also want you to see in verse 31, John chapter 20, he says, this is written so that you may believe, so that you might have life. And what is this that's written? Not only the Gospel of John, but God's entire word. Why do we have the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Why did Nathan appeal to us to say, hey, sign up for a hope group, sign up for a, a discipleship group, come to Sunday morning worship services as we preach the word? Why do we emphasize the Bible so much? The reason we emphasize the Bible is because it reveals to us who God is and empowers us to understand what life is to look like as a result. This is why we encourage you to plug into studying the Bible on your own, studying the Bible together corporately as we come together for worship, study the Bible with a small group in a hope group during the week in a home, why you want to be in a discipleship class or a discipleship group, and why the Bible is so important to our everyday lives. So this is kind of the, the background of what takes place in John chapter 2. I now want us to look at some principles that we can learn from this story, this encounter, this first sign that Jesus does. Look on your sermon notes, if you will, to the first point that I have, and that is that we can ask Jesus anything. We can ask Jesus anything. I, I think it's interesting that Jesus chooses to do his first sign in a situation that is rather mundane. I mean, he's at a party, they run out of wine, and that's his first miracle. 
Like, why was it not the healing of someone that had been lame for 45 years and something that would kind of have the crowd mesmerized and amazed? Like, why did he choose an everyday kind of thing and do his first sign or miracle there? I think it's pointing to the fact that whatever we have going on in our life, whether big or small, whether out of the ordinary, whether mundane, that we can and should always bring those things to Jesus. So whenever we see a need of any kind, of any sort, don't think that any need is beneath God. Bring all your cares and concerns to him and lay them at his feet. So I think it's interesting that it's a kind of a mundane situation where he first shows up. And what we see with Mary, his mother, is the example or model for how when we see a need, we are to come to him with that need. I mean, what does Mary do immediately? As soon as she finds out that they are out of wine, she turns to Jesus because she knows that Jesus is the solution. Now, on one hand... We have Jesus performing a miracle at a mundane situation where they have run out of wine. On the other hand, this is a very serious situation. Let me explain culturally what's taking place. Culturally, um, Jewish weddings were a big deal, like a week-long celebration. Everybody in the town would come and participate. It was a community-wide event and celebration galore. And part of the celebration was the essential that one must have wine at the party. If you go to a party, you expect there to be uh, stuff to eat and drink, right? Like if I go to a wedding, I'm expecting some wedding cake. That's why I'm there, to eat the cake, right? And so if you don't have cake, I'm going to be disappointed. Well, in this scenario, it's even more important that you have the wine and that you're ready to serve it. So it was a big deal. If they ran out of wine and they couldn't solve the problem, then the family that had provided the wine would be humiliated. The groom would be humiliated. Did you know that they could actually face lawsuits? If they didn't have wine crazy like you have a wedding you run out of wine I'm gonna sue you like you should have had wine there you know the deal and so this is a serious moment and Jesus Mary I mean comes to Jesus says Jesus would you do something about it my statement here is that we can and should ask Jesus for anything so who are we to ask Jesus for we should ask for ourselves when we have needs in our lives, or like Mary did. She didn't ask for herself, she asked for others. So whenever you see a need, whether it's affecting you directly or not, our first reaction should be to come to Jesus and lay that before his feet and say, Jesus, we need your help. This could be for yourself, it could be for others, it could be for people you know, people you don't know. I know that I've been to lunch with some of you, and there's kind of a, a history, a, a wonderful history of when you go to at a sit-down uh, sit restaurant and the server comes up to you, and you get ready to pray. Before you pray, you say, hey, we're about to pray for our meal. Is there anything we can pray for you about? You never met the server in your life, and yet you're saying, how can we pray for you? That should be our attitude, that we should ask for things from Jesus for ourselves, but also for others. So then the question is, well, what do we ask for? Well, the answer is already given to you. We should pray for anything, ask Jesus for anything. That means our everyday stuff. When's the last time that you came to Jesus with your everyday stuff, with, with your time management, with your 
meeting that you're about to walk into, with decisions that you need to make, the desire to make a wise decision. Whenever you think about the task, the unending list of tasks that you have to do today, when is the last time that you came to Jesus and said, help me with this? And then, whenever we face a temptation in our everyday life, we should ask Jesus' help. So in everyday life, everyday stuff, whether it's mundane or not, we should ask for his help. Another category we should ask for help with is health. As, as the service started, I, I was looking at my emails, and we got a prayer request in this morning to be praying for someone who's waiting for results from a test. We should always be asking God's help with our health needs. We have folks uh, 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 in hospitals right now that are recovering from surgeries. We have folks at home recovering from COVID and COVID results. We have uh, people that have other illnesses. We should be coming to the Lord in both big and small ways as it relates to our health. Another area or category we should pray for is physical needs, our financial needs. Think of what the model prayer has to say. Remember how Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread we should be praying for our financial and physical needs we should be praying for our relationships for our parents for our children for our co-workers for our neighbors for those that are difficult people in our lives when is the last time we prayed for god's help with that anything that matters to you in life he wants to hear from you but if we're not careful we'll stop right there we'll go okay those are the categories we should come to the lord about did you notice I left one very, very, very important area out, and that is spiritual needs. All too often, we're focused on kind of our, our health or, or relationship issues or financial needs. We should be praying for spiritual needs in our life and in the life of our congregation, in the life of our family, in the life of our coworkers. We should come to the Lord asking for his help with our spiritual needs. When's the last time that you prayed specifically for a person by name that he or she would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? When is the last time you prayed that God would give you a chance to speak to that person, to share the gospel with them? When is the last time that you prayed for your spiritual growth to take place, that the Spirit would work within you, that he would grow you into the man or woman of God that he's calling you to be? When is the last time that you prayed for revival for our nation, for our city, for our church, for your own life, for your family's life? When is the last time that you and I prayed over brokenness, over sin that's in our life? So whenever I say we can and we should ask Jesus anything, let's not just make it about what I can get out of the thing, but instead may we remember that our largest prayer needs should always be the spiritual needs in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Now, as we ask Jesus anything, oh, let me, I left one other part out. You may be thinking, well, Alan, sometimes I don't even know how to pray. I've got good news for you. Did you know that Jesus is interceding or praying on our behalf? And here's what Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. He's praying for us right now. There's a book out by a pastor named Dank Ortland, and the book is called Gentle and Lowly. And in that book, he quotes a theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff. And here's what Burkhoff says. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. And then Ortland goes on to say that our prayer life stinks most of the time. But, when, but what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room, few things would calm us more deeply. 
Can you imagine if you were able to walk through your house, past your bedroom, to the spare bedroom, and Jesus was physically in the house, and you heard him praying for you by name? Like, that might be quite moving, right? Well, the reality is that Jesus is in heaven before the Father, interceding on your behalf and on my behalf. That should be humbling for us that when we don't know how to pray, that Jesus is praying for us. So here's the deal. Even though we can ask Jesus for anything, we need to be careful about what our expectations are for his answer. That's the second point. On your notes, it says that he answers in his time and according to his will. That brings us back to verse 4 of John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And yet he goes on and he does uh, bring about the miracle. But what we're seeing in this is that Jesus is turning to his mother and he's saying, Hey, Mom, like I love you and I'm thankful for you and I'm going to respect you and I see that you as my mom have some authority in my life. But at the end of the day, it's not about what you want, Mom. It's about what the Father wants for me. You're not calling the agenda for my life, but my Father is calling the agenda for my life. And that's how we should be as well. It's not dissimilar from what we see back in Luke chapter 2. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus and his family go uh, to Jerusalem for the festival? And while they're there, they head back to the house. And a few days down the road, the family turns and they're like, where's Jesus? He's 12 years old at this point. Where's Jesus? He's not with us. Maybe he's with family. They can't find him. They go back to Jerusalem. They find him a few days later. Where is Jesus? He's at the temple. And here's what Jesus replies to them in Luke 2.49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So Jesus, always about the father's agenda. And in verse 4 of chapter 2 of John, we see here that he's telling his mom, I am not going to make my decisions based on human situations. Rather, I'm going to follow the agenda that has been set by my father. So that means even though we go to Jesus with anything, we may not always be praying according to his will, to his timing, and to his desires. And we need to understand that Jesus does not always answer prayers exactly like we think he should because he's going to answer according to his will and according to his timetable. In verse 4, he says, hey, mother, my hour has not yet come. Let me walk through what he means by this phrase. In the Gospel of John, there are nine different times that the phrase, my hour, is found. And about six of those, it's similar to this one. My hour has not yet come. And then three or four of those times, he says, all right, the time has come. My hour has come. And every time he talks about my hour, he's referencing the hour that he had come for, which was to be crucified on a cross, to be raised again on the third day. And that is what his hour is. And so I believe the reason that, that Jesus kind of seemed to have done this miracle in secret, if you will, and not make a big deal of it, and why at this point not everybody knew what transpired is because he knew that if he came in and did all of this, that it'd get too much attention. People wouldn't really get the full picture of what it means that he is the son of God. And because of that, he doesn't, he's not ready to be crucified yet. So he says, my hour's not yet come. He's not saying that I'm not going to perform this miracle. He's just saying that I'm going to respond the way that I think is best. Oftentimes growing up, whenever I heard about how we could come to God with any prayer that we have, I, I always heard that God could answer prayer one of three ways. Maybe you've heard it. 
He can answer yes, he can answer no, or he can answer not yet. Like in some ways that may oversimplify it, but it does show us that the reality is this, that it's all up to God and what his plan is for our life and not for us. I, I referenced the, the model prayer a moment ago. We sometimes call it the Lord's Prayer. And here's another line that I want to quote from the model prayer that you're probably familiar with. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So even when we ask the Lord for help on whatever is going on in our life or somebody else's life, we must pray ultimately that his will be done and not necessarily my will be done. You see, whenever you ask Jesus for anything, you're following an example that Mary, his mother, sets for us. And to kind of leave you on this point right here, I want to ask you, which Mary are you going to be? There, there are two different Marys that we see, not literally, but two different reactions that Mary gives in these verses. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, when the wine ran out, he says, she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Basically, she's saying, hey, they're out of wine. So I need you to do this for me. I need you, son, to go do this. She's almost demanding that Jesus do things in her way and in her time frame. So whenever you and I pray to God, we can be like that Mary from verse 3, demanding that God answer it when and how we want him to answer it. Or the better option is we can be Mary that we see in verse 5. After Jesus kind of clarifies, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this in my time frame, and my will. Verse 5, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. When I read that the first time, I thought this is what was going on. I thought Mary was like going, yeah, Jesus, whatever, whatever. Just go do what he tells you to do. Like, I'm going to force your hand. Jesus, you've got to do this. But rather, what's taking place is, Mary, I believe, here's what Jesus says in verse 4, and yet she still knows that the answer, whatever the answer is, that Jesus provides the answer. And so she's not telling the servants what to do. She's simply telling the servants, listen to him, because he's calling the shots, and do it his way. So I think that the Mary in verse 5 is uh, the attitude of submitting to God, submitting to Jesus and his plans and trusting him without forcing his hand. So whenever you and I pray, we can either try to force God's hand and get it the way we want it to be, or we can submit ourselves to trusting in him that he knows what's best. And then at the end of the day, we see the final point, which is that everything is done to bring him glory. Everything is done to bring him glory. Verse 11 tells us that that's what took place on this day. It says that this first sign at the end of verse 11 manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. To manifest his glory means to reveal who he is. To manifest his glory means that he is receiving the glory and the honor and no one else. His glory was revealed and his followers believed in him. You may be going, all right, I don't really understand, Alan. Like how could a simple act of taking water and turning it into wine reveal his glory. Like, it seems like there's not much to see here. What's going on? How could that reveal his glory? Why did Jesus choose this as his first sign? I want to walk through some things about this miracle that might help us understand how this reveals God's glory. First of all, the fact that the wine ran out What we have to understand is this miracle of turning water into wine is a literal true story. It literally happened this way. 
and yet it has a deeper meaning, and therefore there are some things we need to see under the surface. And I believe that the turning the water into wine points to spiritual truths, okay? So the fact that the water ran out, the spiritual truth is that the time of the old covenant was passing away. Jesus is showing up on the scene. Yes, Jesus has always been here because he's eternally God, but he's showing up in the human flesh as the, the Messiah, the Son of God, in the public sense of the matter in this chapter. And so with his public beginning of his ministry, we see that the old covenant was passing away. You're like, how could it do that? Well, what kind of water jars does it say? It says the water jars are jars that were used for purification for Jewish ceremonies. This isn't just a jug of water. Rather, he's changing this purification jar into wine, making it new and different. The purification jars were used to cleanse a person. Like you would wash the outside of the person. You would follow the religious customs of the day. And what Jesus is saying is that the time for that old covenant for the law was being uh, completed. And that he was coming to fulfill the law by showing us what the new covenant is all about. Think for just a moment. When Jesus is at the Last Supper, when he's at the Passover with his disciples, what does he say when he serves them wine? He says this wine is the new covenant, right, of his blood. So I believe that this idea of him turning water into wine is showing us that the time of the old covenant was exhausted and that the new covenant is beginning. The old covenant was able to temporarily make you clean. And why do I say temporarily? Because they had to follow up with weekly ritual sacrifices and yearly day of atonement sacrifices. And it was year after year after year after year after year of sacrifices, right? But with Jesus, it's a one-time washing, and we are clean forever. Earlier this morning, we were over here at the baptistry, and Kayla got baptized. Back in the Old Testament, you would have ceremonially washing, ceremonial washings all the time to cleanse your bodies. But Jesus took that ritual and turned it into something different. The water did not wash away Kayla's sins. Rather, Jesus already had, but it was an outward sign of what he'd already done for her. And so, figuratively speaking, her sins were washed away. With Jesus, he permanently washes away sin. He is the new and better covenant that, that came about on this occasion. You see, it's not about ritual. It's about new life in the kingdom of God. Also, this picture of wine. Let's think for just a minute. Wine was a symbol to the Jewish people of times of plenty and blessing. All throughout the Old Testament, you can see that whenever they're talking about being uh, plentiful things and blessing, there's always wine involved. And in the Old Testament prophets, there's wine involved. And ultimately, it points to the day and age that the Messiah would come and the plenty, abundant of wine pointed to the messianic age and so here is Jesus saying let's have wine for the Messiah has come the Messiah has arrived so Jesus is beginning to paint a picture of who he is and then we see an abundance of the miracle what does it say here it says that um, that he took six water jars why did he take six water jars why not 
five? Why not seven? Why not eight? There is a possibility the reason he had six water jars is because, yes, that's how many were there, but also six points to incomplete. That's a, kind of a, a figurative uh, thought process in Jewish numbers. Six is an incomplete number. Seven is the perfect number. And so there are six of these water jars pointing to the incompleteness of the Old Testament way of doing things. And then it says that these jars all hold 20 to 30 gallons. So let's do the math real quick. That means they went from having zero wine to having at least 120 gallons of wine, maybe as much as 180 gallons of wine. In my book, that's a bunch of wine. And Jesus could provide more. So this idea that there's an abundance in this miracle points to both the quantity, because there's 120, 180 gallons of wine, but also according to quality. What is the master of the banquet saying? He says, this is the best wine ever, right? And so with Jesus comes the new covenant, which is abundant and full and overflowing, both in quantity and in quality. Just as that was the best wine, the covenant that's found in Jesus' blood on our behalf is the best kind there is. Here they are at a wedding. They're at a wedding. Why did Jesus choose to do his first sign at a wedding think about the poetic sense of what a marriage represents in the old testament doesn't the marriage represent the covenant relationship between god and israel in the new testament doesn't it represent the fact that the church is the bride of christ and that that he is the groom of the church and so all throughout scripture old testament and new testament weddings were used to demonstrate a covenant relationship between god and his people and so it's completely fitting that the first sign is committed or or, or done here at a wedding not only was it at a wedding it was actually at a feast right it was at a party at the at the wedding and so let's think for just a moment in the New Testament, especially as you move into Revelation, what is referred to as, what, how, how do we see heaven pictured? At times, we understand that heaven is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And so here's Jesus saying, the Messiah has arrived, and I'm showing you this in the context of a wedding at a feast, because that is what it's going to all end up with. Also, I think it's important that it's at a party because we see that there's a perpetual joy here. I titled this message, Welcome to the Party, because all too often we think the Christian life is full of don'ts, which it does have a lot of don'ts, but it's not about a list of things that we do and don't do, but rather it's about the joy that's found in Christ when he brings forgiveness of our sins and we live in the midst of that joy. That even when life isn't going the way that we want it to go, that we can and should have the joy of the Lord shining through us. Paul talks in Philippians, rejoice the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The joy that Christ brings is just like this miracle. It's overflowing and it's abundant. So based on who we see Jesus is in this passage, we should worship him throughout our entire life. And when we come together as a church family, as Nathan pointed out a moment ago, that among the four things that we do here at our church, worship attendance, hope groups, uh, discipleship opportunities, and serving, that when we come together as a church family to worship on Sunday mornings, we should come together in joy, celebrating all that God has done and that all that God is going to do. 
I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but there one time was a, a plaque in a church foyer. And on that plaque, there were a list of names. And on that list of names, there was also a bunch of American flags. And this little boy, after church one Sunday, was out in the foyer, and he was mesmerized by this plaque, and he's staring it down, trying to figure it out. And the pastor comes out to him and say, says, Little Johnny, what, what are you doing here? What's, what's going on? And Johnny turns to the pastor, and he says, Well, pastor, what is this display? The pastor says, Well, son, it's a memorial to all the men and women who have died in the service. The boy kind of shook his head, continued to look at it, a few minutes later, he softly turns to the pastor. He says, which service, the 9.30 or the 11 o'clock service? <laughs> All too often, when we come into church, we act as if it's a funeral. Don't get me wrong, we should be in awe of a holy God. But I also know that we should dance and celebrate and rejoice about who God is and we should worship him with gladness and with joy and not just somberness. Think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 122 verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I want to challenge us as a church family to worship genuinely and authentically, not put on airs, but let's be open and honest and willing to celebrate God for all, who, uh, for all that he is. So that we worship and celebrate and remember that we're not going to a funeral, we're going to a, a wedding party. And that there's abundance there and there's richness there and that Jesus is providing us any and everything that we need that's truly within his will and his plan and his timing and we should trust him with all of those things. So I want us to consider real quickly what we see once again in John chapter 20, verse 31. John says that these signs were done and these signs were written down in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Already this morning through Nathan's words, my words, the word picture of the, of the baptism, we have seen and heard clearly that all of us are sinners in need of rescue and the only way that we can be rescued from our sin is through what Jesus has done on our behalf, that he lived a perfect life and yet he was sacrificed, that our sins may be forgiven if we place our faith and our trust in him and receive through his grace the forgiveness of our sins. That we might believe in him and that by believing in him we would have life and have it abundantly because of what Christ has done on our behalf. See, if we're not careful, we'll walk away from this story that happened in real life, in the life of this couple at a wedding, and we'll go, oh, that's cool, like, Jesus met their need, like, he, he provided the wine, and so anytime I find myself in a bind, I just hope that the good Lord upstairs helps me out of my bind, and that's the rescue I need. Well, that's a wonderful rescue, but it amounts to nothing at the end of the day if you've not experienced the rescue from your sin. See, Jesus didn't come to rescue from your predicament, from your difficult moment, to rescue your marriage, to rescue your finances, or whatever your felt need is. Rather, he came to bring you life through the forgiveness of your sins, and if you'll place your faith and your trust in him, you'll have life, and then you can experience his blessings as you walk through life with him.
this morning, this morning, would you respond to Jesus? Would you believe in him? And would you have life in him knowing there's no other way for life? And if you do have that life in him, would you begin to live out that truth? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for a chance to come together this morning and to see an unusual miracle that may not make sense in some ways, and yet it does. The fact that you sent your son to show us your glory, that you sent us your son that we might believe in him, that you sent us your son that by believing in him we might have life. This morning, Father, I pray for folks that are hearing my voice right now, that we would all evaluate our lives. Have I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus? Do I truly believe in him? And that, Father, if there are people who don't believe in him, that today would be the day of salvation. And that, Father, that those of us that have received that salvation, that we'd be living in the freedom that is found in the life that's in Jesus and in him alone. Father, I pray that you would have your way this morning, that we would respond according to your leadership, and that your glory would be extended because of who you are. God, may you have your way with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you